Claptrap, number 17, Charity Work in the Dominican Republic. Welcome back to another episode of Claptrap. In this episode, we kind of take a little break from our typical exploration of a hobby and we talk about something maybe a little more important. We're going to be joined by Jim Patterson and he is going to tell us about his charity work that he does down in the Dominican Republic. Jim is an optometrist and he also served as the medical group commander for the 179th Air Wing of the Ohio Air National Guard. And so he's going to tell us a little bit about his military background and then go into the charity work that he does for the people down in the Dominican Republic. Jim is a great guy. He's also pretty entertaining. So I hope you all enjoy. Here we go. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Jim, you have quite an extensive military background. To start off, can you share with the audience maybe why you wanted to join the military? Sure. I was a practicing optometrist. I graduated in 1981, set up a private practice in Ashland, Ohio. And one of the um, air guardsmen from the Mansfield base, which is only about 20 or 25 minutes drive away from us, came into my office for an eye exam and mentioned that they needed an optometrist over at, at the medical unit over at the Air National Guard base. And I was just getting started, had a little bit of extra time, and I've always kind of been somewhat interested in the military, and my dad was a, is a World War II veteran. He's 95 and still alive and doing great. One thing that I always respected very much was the military, so I went over and, and talked to him and decided that that'd be something I'd be interested in, and I became the base optometrist over at the Mansfield Air National Guard base. And I served there for 17 years in that position and and became promoted to the medical group commander and served in that capacity for almost five years. And then I retired about 14 years ago. And then coming out of the military, you started a private practice. Do you still operate that as well? Yes, somewhat. I just sold my 51% of the practice in the, actually the end of September. And now I work part-time. It's great. I'm kind of semi-retired. Wow. That's wonderful to hear. It's always good to hear about people, you know, getting out of the hustle and bustle of the work life and getting to enjoy some of the other aspects of life. Now being in the military as more of a support role, working as a medical professional, how do your responsibilities differ from those of the typical airmen who are out flying planes and things like that? The um, medical group goes through pretty much what, especially on the enlisted side, pretty much what any enlisted person goes. They go to basic military training, BMT, or sometimes called boot camp. And then they get trained into a specialty. And there's numerous medical specialists in the, in the Air Force and in the Air National Guard. The officers are a little bit different. 
the officers there are different uh, cores, the medical core where physicians go to, the nurse core where the nurses go to, and there's the dental core where the dentists go to, there's the biomedical scientist core, which what I was a part of, and that would include veterinarians who are public health officers, bioenvironmental engineers, optometrists, podiatrists, you know, that's kind of, sometimes we joke as it's the land of misfit toys, but... And then there's the medical service core, which would be administrators and, and people like that. And then they're all medical medical service officers. Okay, that clears things up. So in particular, you served with the 179th Airlift Group out in Mansfield, Ohio. Can you elaborate on what their role is? Well, our role here at the Mansfield unit that, that I was a part of it has for a long time been an airlift squad. It started out as a fighter group in 1949. And then in the, sometime in the 70s, it became an airlift group or airlift unit and had C-130s. And for a short time, for a few years, it switched over to uh, C-27s. And now it's back to C-130s again. And their mission is our airplanes, there was usually six of them to eight of them assigned at any one time. And they were, they'd fly really all over the world. And most of the time, one or two of the air, airplanes were up and about in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, did airlift, moving personnel and cargo from one place to the other. The Air National Guard and the Air Force Reserve are very active in the airlift community. Now, I've been out to the Air Force Museum in Dayton, which, by the way, is a great place. If anybody wants to go see something incredible, they have basically every plane ever used in the United States Air Force, enemy air forces like the USSR, Japan. They have all the planes, every single one, from biplanes all the way up to stealth fighters. It's amazing. Maybe you can explain just how big a C-130 is, because I don't think people understand what one is until they actually go see something like that. Yeah, they're pretty big, and it's it's a very unique aircraft in that uh, the C in all these airplanes, C-130s, C-141s, C-5s, C-27s, all those, that means that it's usually a cargo aircraft, and it's lifting people and cargo from place to place. And a C-130 is a very large aircraft. It can can carry jeeps and, and a lot of personnel. People jump out of them. Army uh, troops often jump off the back. They'll lower the back end, and and the airborne troops can can jump out the back of that. They are very unique. They can land in very rough conditions and short runways. They can also back up. They're one of the few aircraft that the pilot can reverse the propellers in the turbo engines and the aircraft can move backward without the assistance of land vehicle moving them like you'd see in airports and stuff like that where tractors grab onto an aircraft and move it. C-130 doesn't necessarily need that. And that's what makes them very useful for the military. And since it's a cargo plane, they have quite a fitting nickname. They're known as the Hercules you know, due to picking up things and moving it about. Do you know if they can take off from aircraft carriers and things like that, or is it much too short of a runway? 
I, I do believe um, the Navy has C-130s that will lift off of an aircraft and deliver supplies and everything to aircraft carriers and from the aircraft carrier to other uh, ships in, in the carrier group. Were you ever deployed outside the United States during your time in the Air Force? I was never deployed in a war zone. I was deployed mostly just for training all over the world. I, I had the opportunity to go to Europe, had opportunity to go to Alaska three times, went to Japan, did humanitarian trips to Belize, Honduras. And when I was the medical group commander, my unit, I did not go, but my unit was called MedRets, and they went down... And about half of our unit went down to Dominican Republic and did a humanitarian tour also. So is that how you got involved with your charity work down in the Dominican Republic is through these humanitarian missions with the Air Force? No, it wasn't. How I got involved with my trips to the Dominican Republic was in one of my training missions that every four years, each medical unit in the Air Force, Air National Guard needs to go to some field training. And one year, it must have been probably like 1994, 1995, we deployed as a unit to Alpena, Michigan. And the Puerto Rico Air National Guard medical unit deployed to Alpena, Michigan at the same time. And so we did a joint exercise where the Alpena personnel up there did the, our training. And that is where I met one of their nurses, nurse practitioner, um, Gary Klein, who is a, was, he's retired now too, but he was a member of the Puerto Rico Air National Guard. And he's also serves as the medical missionary in Dominican Republic. And then when he would needed to train to Puerto Rico, he'd just take the ship or there's a, a ferry that would go from Dominican Republic to Puerto Rico, or he'd take an airplane to do his drills to in Puerto Rico. And I just met him there and we became friends. He happened to have the bunk across from me and told me that he was a medical missionary. And I said, oh, that's neat. Sometime I'll, I'll get with the Lions Club and get a bunch of used eyeglasses and come down and, and do what we can to help, help the poor people down there. And he was excited about that. And it, it just kind of grew from that. Now, is there one overarching organization that's in charge, or is it a collaboration among many? It's actually a whole bunch of different ones that come together. I've had a lot of my Air National Guard friends have been part of this. The main organization is probably would be Gary's that he, he runs. It's called the Christian Dominican Medical Mission. And you look that up on, on the internet and they have a website and tells you about them. He's started numerous congregations down there and he is a medical missionary. He, he practices basically medicine down there and goes in remote areas where there's really not access to medical care. And he does a wonderful job. Then then he has a lot of visiting physicians from United States, dentists from United States, and we're the only eye group that goes down. And my local ophthalmologist is Dr. Mohinder Gupta. When we first, on our first trip was in 1997, he wanted to go too, and he performed cataract surgeries. And then I did um, eye examinations for glasses, 
And we'd get our used eyeglasses from the Lions Clubs. So when people give their used eyeglasses to the Lions Club, they are usually given in the Ohio area, in the northern Ohio area, all those glasses you give goes to an organization called VOSH, Volunteers in Optometry to Serve Humanity. And there's a national VOSH. There's also an Ohio VOSH. They have websites people could visit. They inspect the glasses. They catalog them according to powers, make sure that they're in, in good shape, repair repair them as needed and that and throw out the stuff the ones that can't be used and they catalog it and then we go in and we just get those glasses and we have them all cataloged according to the power so the lions club is is part of this vosh is part of this dr gupta gets his surgical instruments and supplies from an organization called c international S-E-E International, and they also have a website people could visit and look at. And then my local church has a lot of the people that go on a trip is from my local church, although, you know, anybody's welcome. We have people from different optometrists have gone down. Dr. Rick Miller, Dr. Jim Conway have gone on numerous trips with, with us also. And there's been a few other optometrists that have gone with us over the years, because we've gone 14 or 15 times since 1997, and uh, 2020 was our last trip, and we hope to go again in 2022. So it's really a a combination or confederation of a whole bunch of different groups. It sounds like this whole project is a really good grassroots organization kind of thing, large network of like-minded individuals going down to the Dominican Republic to do God's work. You said that the originator of everything was a medical missionary. Do you think you could elaborate on what that means? Yes, Gary Klein. He's, again, from the Christian Dominican Medical Mission, and he's a retired Air National Guardsman also. And he, oh boy, I bet it was probably about 30 years ago, 25 years ago, perhaps, he and his wife, who's also a nurse, decided to take over the previous missionaries were had a medical background and what they do is their motto is to provide medical care to earn the right to teach the gospel and while they give medical care while people are they they do that normally in church buildings, sometimes schools, sometimes prisons, sometimes hospitals, but it's usually in in church buildings which are down there, a church building is very similar to my garage or your garage or anybody's garage. And, you know, they're really very Spartan. And they set up clinics. And a lot of times the local church will be used for, like, assisting and crowd control and getting people signed up for, you know, care and that type of thing. So he, he's been doing that for years. He's affiliated with the independent Christian churches. And although there's numerous churches that, that support him, the many of different denominations. And also, it's not only Christians. We've had all different types of Christians go down, all different denominations and types of Christians. But we've also had Sikhs, Hindus, Jewish people. You know, I've I've been part of our mission, too. 
just people that want to go down and help. It definitely sounds like a good charity for people to go down of all different backgrounds to go down and help out. Now, when you go down there, what are some of the challenges about operating out of the Dominican Republic? For me, it's getting through customs. The customs, it's very hard to get through. We'll have all these used glasses and down there in most third world countries, they don't have income taxes and sales taxes so much like we have here. So a lot of the money where the government gets money is by charging duties as things come in. And we we get uh, letters from their government and stuff saying that this is a humanitarian mission and please let them through, but it's still kind of sometimes hard to get through through the customs. It's very hard to get our medicines that we want to use. We take down for the for the eyeglass team and the optometrist. We also check for glaucoma. We check for cataracts and also condition. It's very common down there. It's called tridium. It's a growth on the eye that they experience a lot just because they're exposed to a lot of dust and heat and the ultraviolet light's a lot stronger there near the equator. And Dr. Gupta will remove those and we have to get the medicines for all the surgical medicines, which is a lot, some of the surgical equipment that we take back and forth to get it through customs. That's probably the hardest thing. And the other, we just have to be a little bit careful. You can't drink the water there. There's when we go out and into our, our mission fields where we we go, we try to go to different places and we try it. If we go have five clinic days, we'll go to five different churches and we recently, the last few trips, we've been going to their their prisons too, and because the people in the prisons have no care, no access to glasses, and it's you know really a and it's a neat experience. And there's we work with some missionaries that work inside the prisons too that Gary is is friends with. So other than that, it's even though it's kind of winter time when we usually try to go, it's still in the high eighties. And for the us optometrists, we have to close everything up, you know, so we get dark. Our tents have to be closed. We don't get much air. So it's kind of hot for us. And it's not so hot for the Dominicans, but it, to us, it really seems like it's pretty hot. And there's all kinds of bugs that get us too. They must like our winterized blood. There's these bugs called noceums and and you, you don't see them much, but I always come back with just thousands of bites on me when I come back. Yeah, down in the tropics, I've been to Puerto Rico and some of the Virgin Islands on vacation, and bugs can definitely be a problem. And it's nice when it's air-conditioned, if you're at a resort or something, but when you're out in the in the sticks, where we're normally at, we go to the areas where there's really not much access. A lot of people, most of the people live in home, they build their own structures out of pallets, and sometimes if they have cinder blocks, they're lucky. Most of them have dirt floors. But every time I go, it's a little bit more and more advanced every time I go. The roads are a little bit better. When we first went down in 1997, there was hardly any stoplights. Even in a big city of Santo Domingo, uh, which is a great big city, it just just seems to me like it's chaos, the traffic and everything. But every time I I go, there's more stoplights in the the cities, not in the... In the rural areas, but and the roads are just a little bit nicer. The cars are a little bit nicer. the The roads have a little bit better drainage systems and things like that, so the roads don't get washed out quite as easily as they, you know, because they get a lot of heavy storms down there. 
but it's interesting. It's it's been a great experience for us. So Spanish is the national language of the Dominican Republic. That's what most people speak. Is that ever a barrier for you when you're trying to maybe explain a medical concept or anything that you're trying to do? We do have interpreters and we do pick up a little bit of Spanish. You know, I'll look up, look down, look, you know, that kind of stuff. We kind of pick up. But when we're explaining a condition, then you kind of need an interpreter. So we do have different interpreters, but there's a lot of young Dominicans that are learning English. So a lot of them act as our, our interpreters. And that's that's a neat experience. The problem is, is their their English doesn't have a lot of medical terminology in it. We have difficult saying, you know, your retina or your cornea or, you know, sometimes we can't get that specific when we're explaining them. So we use a picture and kind of show them. That makes a lot of sense, because like if you're one of those guys learning English as a translator, you're going to focus more on kind of conversational things, things like. How do you order off a menu? Things like that, instead of focusing on really technical jargon. But the people there are very loving. I think most of the people that have gone down there, they get more out of it than the people we go to help, in my opinion. We've had tons of people from my church go. Tons of people are friends of mine. Most of we even get people that were former members of the Air National Guard unit that live in Tennessee and and one lives in Nevada now and they they join up with us and go down. But most of the people are from the Ashland, Ohio area. Earlier, you were talking about the capital of Santo Domingo. Do you primarily operate out of there in the surrounding rural areas or do you kind of spread the network across the entire island? Gary's mission is in the in an area called San Cristobal. And that would be, oh, an hour, hour and a half drive west of Santo Domingo. But occasionally we go to the barrios around Santo Domingo. And we also go, not just to Spanish places, there's a lot of Haitians that live in Dominican Republic. So probably about a quarter to a third of the people speak Creole. And then that even gets harder. The Dominican Republic and Haiti, I think, are on the same island. Is there like a mountain range or something that divides the island with Haiti being on one side and the Dominican Republic being on the other? Haiti's on the west side, and it's probably like the western one-third of the country. And the Dominican is the eastern two-thirds of the country and it goes back there there's been i i forget how many exact wars between france and spain because france was the at one time was the own haiti was a colony of france and dominican republic was a colony of spain and between the french and the spanish and then later the Haitians and the Dominicans, there's been like I don't know, nine or 10 or 12 w- different wars between the two countries. Now there hasn't for a long time, but, you know, two separate different cultures and, and languages and everything. But Dominican Republic is a little bit better off than Haiti. So a lot of the Haitians come over to the Dominican Republic, but they live in the most poor areas. This was probably 10 years ago or so now. You know, Haiti was struck with a huge earthquake and it was a large natural disaster. Being on the same island, did the Dominican Republic experience any adverse effects from that? 
Gary actually went over to Haiti to help to assist in that year, you know, to so he does go over to Haiti occasionally. We have never gone to Haiti. To them, they're not real anxious to have Haitians come over to the Dominican Republic. And the Haitians that don't have proper identification and proper papers, immigration papers, they'll round them up and they'll grab them. If they don't have the right papers on them, they put them in a truck and ship them back over to Haiti that day. So the Dominicans did not have any physical damage, but there's a lot of Haitians that were displaced and had to come over to the Dominican Republic. For all these medicines and other equipment and eyeglasses and everything that you bring, how do your groups raise funds? Does each group do that independently and then they kind of just bring whatever they have raised themselves? Well, the eyeglasses, you know, are funded through Bosch and through the Lions Club. Those are just, those are gifts and so there's no charge for that type of thing. And then Bosch supplies us the instruments that we we would use for all of our equipment to do the eye examinations and that kind of thing. And then for Dr. Gupta, C International supplies the surgical equipment, which we take back with us, but also the surgical supplies. But as far as how to get there for we have to pay our room and board for airline tickets. And we usually spend two or three, sometimes four days after our trip, we go to a re- resort just to kind of wind down and, you know, get kind of back to normal after after five or six uh, clinics, days of clinics. And then we spend a few days at the beach, you know, as rest and relaxation. But we fend it ourselves. Usually costs about $1,500 a person. And each person just, you know, pays their own way. And usually they make payment to our church has a fund that collects that. And then it pays for the airline tickets and for the room and board and all that kind of stuff. You were mentioning going to a resort to kind of wind down after all your charity work is done. What is the resort area like in the Dominican Republic? Being in a tropical location, I would imagine tourism is probably one of their biggest industries. Where we go near Santo Domingo, it's mostly Europeans that go. There's not too many Americans go to the resorts where we're at, or it's the richer Dominicans go to where, where we're at. But the best beaches are way to the east and then the north part of the island. And where we go is closer to the Santo Domingo airport, not the Puerto Plata airport, which is where probably most of the American tourists go to. There's a resort area, but it's mostly Europeans and even South Americans there than there are um, people from the United States or Canada. There's a few, but not many. While you've been down there, have you ever gone to a baseball game? Because the Dominican Republic produces some of the best baseball players in the entire world. Gary's mission, his visitor center, is right next to a baseball complex. You know, they'll scout out 12 and 13-year-olds that have a possibility of becoming major leaguers. And then they will bring them into their baseball camp and they'll live there. They'll go to school there and they go to school and they'll live there. And if they become major leaguers, 
then they get a portion like a certain percentage, five or 10% of their salary. You know, the young Dominicans want to go to these baseball camps. And so we go over there at time in the, in the evenings and sometimes watch them practice and stuff. But a lot of the people I haven't, but a lot of the other people have gone to the, I think they're the Lions, the Santo Domingo Lions. And I've watched them on TV. And when I watch them on TV, they're really similar to Major League Baseball. It'd probably be the equivalent of AAA ball is what we're looking at. Maybe a little bit better than AAA ball in the Dominican leagues there. But yeah, there's a ton. Baseball is really, really popular. And it's kind of neat. You see young people all the time when we're in our bus going from clinic to clinic, you'll see young people in their baseball uniforms and their gloves and bats and stuff heading to the, to the local field. David Ortiz, who used to play for the Boston Red Sox, I know he's a Dominican player and he has a ton of charities and stuff down there to help the poor people of the Dominican Republic to kind of give back to the communities that he came from. There's tons of, you know, and they're all heroes that they make it to the major leagues. They're really looked up to, you know, pay for schools and civic places. Every time we go down there, there's more public schools. But a lot of the areas that we go to, they don't have a civil structure like we do here, where they don't have a Lions Club or any clubs where in the, the churches and the schools become where people hang out. They're the organizations of the city. And, and when you come back to the United States and you realize just how lucky we have it here. We don't have to walk 2,200 yards to a, to a pump to get clean water to drink. We don't, you know, they, there's a sewage systems and that kind of stuff. And every time we go, it's a little bit better. The bigger cities are starting to have those things, but you still can't drink the water down there. You know, it's still not like here. To wrap things up, if people hear this and they want to help contribute to your cause, what is the best way for them to do that? You get onto the website for Christian Dominican Medical Mission or your local Lions Club. Eventually that kind of will come back. That will help the eye care, you know, throughout the world. And the Lions Clubs are very into that. But also just anybody's church or synagogue, they probably have medical missionaries and, and medical people or support different things in third world countries. And to me, I think those those are probably the best ways to help the people in the third world countries. I think sometimes the big organizations, things get lost in size, you know, and that type of thing where if, if it's your local church, your local church probably knows the people that are given the money to and make sure that the money gets used in the best way possible. And I know the, the Lions clubs, you know, they're very efficient and they're very careful to make sure that, that whatever funds go are used in the proper ways. Excellent. I'll make sure that all the different websites and everything that you've mentioned, I will include links to those in the show notes so anybody can check those out. I also want to give a big thanks to you, Jim, for coming on to the podcast and sharing your story. I know that I am very grateful that people like you exist that actually you know, do God's work and get out there into the trenches and help people out that are far poorer than what we are up here in the United States. So thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right. That's the episode for this week. I hope you guys learned something. I just want to say that I hope you guys will be inspired by this episode and get out there and do some charity work. I myself am part of an organization called the Knights of Columbus that does 
a bunch of work that's similar to what Jim just described. And we're always looking for new people. We're always looking for people to help out, you know, do these events and, and do charity work all across the world. So go help local organizations. That's kind of my wrap up thoughts for this week. I also want to say next week, Josh should be back on the podcast. So you'll get to hear his wholesome voice next week. We have a good episode in the works for you guys. And also get out there, share, like, review, just help spread the word and get Claptrap out there. So thanks guys. Love you all. See you next week.